We shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I've always known, we shall overcome someday. Now, you might have known that song from the... From the, uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, championed by Martin Luther King and many others in the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Convention, that was the theme song, the chant that got them through the struggle for freedom. Now, black Americans were free in, in fact, but in reality, they didn't experience freedom. They were treated as second-class citizens on the bus, in the uh, restroom, in the cafe, at the university, at schools, you name it. So they had to fight for freedom. And the book of the Bible that they went to most often and talked about was Exodus. That's where we're uh, studying at the moment with our new series, started last week, Exodus, Know the Lord. And in the first two chapters, slavery is the big theme. It's highlighted and it's uh, put before God's people. Slavery, which is really a question of who's the king, a question of sovereignty, who's in charge. And the Israelites are underneath the jackboot of the Egyptian pharaoh. And so you need a saviour. And the book of Exodus starts off by presenting a very unlikely saviour. This man, Moses, who starts out as a baby. The, uh, the cry of a baby, Moses, that meant he was saved from out of the river and changed the course of history. But we're not teaching a course on ancient history here at Grace Church. God's word is living and active, and these things were written down for our sake. So it's entirely pro- appropriate for us to ask every week, so what? That happened maybe 1400 BC. And in response to the question, so what, what does that mean? Last week, I asked a question, and here it is again. Are you a slave? Are you a slave? And you may say, well, come on. I know I don't get paid much, and my boss can be a tyrant, but I'm not really a slave. But remember the features of slavery that the book of Exodus talks about. Look with me here at uh, chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. The Egyptians uh, worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly, making their lives bitter. And so that's the experience of slavery. So let me ask again, as I did last week, are you a slave in terms of experience? Because a lot more people are slaves than they realize. And what are the slave masters? Anything that makes your life bitter, that works you ruthlessly, that leaves you groaning. If you ever have panic attacks and you're overwhelmed that you're out of control of your life, then you are a slave to something. If you ever self-harm or you're tempted to self-harm, You are a slave to something. If you have an eating disorder or you hate looking at yourself in the mirror, you are a slave. If you fail, and we all do, if when you fail, the feeling of failure is so crushing that you hate yourself and your life and you're crushed, then you are a slave to your success. If you're addicted to something that you can't let go of, try as you might, drink, pornography, then you're a slave. If you always work much harder than you need to, If you always need to be the top of the class, if you just dread being second-rate or average, then you're a slave. If you're obsessed with the quest to be beautiful and slim, 
and it takes away your joy, then you are a slave to that. If your children dominate your life and the happiness of your children and their success rules you, then you're a slave to your own children. If voices from the past, voices maybe from when you were a child that said you were fat or thick or ugly or a freak, dominate you, then you're a slave to those voices. See, we're enslaved by far more things than we realise. Anything that works you ruthlessly and makes your life bitter is a form of slavery. We just don't realise it. Now, to say all that is not to belittle the experience of literal slavery. If you've seen uh, the, uh, the, the Hollywood film last year, 12 Years a Slave, or a few years back, Amistad, or any of those other very powerful evocations of slavery, I don't want to belittle that in any sense. And you know that slavery still exists today, even in this city. Women are trafficked from other parts of the world and kept in houses and in basements in Manchester, places not very far from here. They're sex slaves, and their lives are absolutely miserable and short. So I'm not belittling that, but I do want to recognize that in the Bible, slavery is a category that is used to talk about life apart from God. Jesus himself said these words, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And if the Son, Jesus, sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we are all slaves to sin, according to Jesus. And we need to be freed from it. So according to the Bible, we need a new king to be set free. And the story of Exodus is the story of a change in king. The people go from being slaves to Pharaoh to servants of the Lord. They're set free, given a new master. That's what we need. Now, that's all recap. But I've heard enough in the last seven days from various people to convince me of two things. First thing, that this teaching on slavery hit a raw nerve last week for quite a lot of people. And secondly, that the job ain't done. The job ain't done. Preaching, I I think, is a bit like surgery. Uh, Last week was exploratory. We were digging around and we identified the location of the tumour. But now uh, we need to really go after the tumours this week. One person said to me this week, I realised for the first time that I'm a slave to my life. How can we get to live in such a way that we're no longer enslaved by these things? How can we live a life that is full, free and flourishing? Now some people answer that question by saying that you need a new vision of you. You need a new vision of you. You know, you need to realise that you're a really great person. And we all love you. And you've got so much potential. And if only you could realise it and know how much we all love you, we think you're great, then you'd be set free. But you know what? That's actually not the Bible's answer. It's not the Bible's answer. The Bible says if you have a low self-esteem... You're right. You should do. Growing in self-esteem may be superficial or even toxic. It won't do the job of setting you free. Notice what happens when Moses asks the question here in chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should do this big job that you've given me? Just turn over there to, to page 60. Chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, how does God respond to him? Don't worry, Moses, you're great. We all think you can do it. 
you know what? You had really good experience of all the inner workings of Pharaoh's palace. And you looked the part. You even walked like an Egyptian. Sorry, I had to say it. You had the best education that Egypt could offer. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, says that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And don't worry about that speech impediment. We can work with that. Okay, you're getting on in years. But you know, 40 years in the wilderness herding sheep has given you a certain gravitas. As well as a distinctive odour. You can do it, Moses. Woohoo! No, this is not... God doesn't say anything like that. Moses says, who am I? And God says, what, verse 12? I will be with you. Stop thinking about yourself. I will be with you. Who am I? God's response is, who I am. In other words, you don't need a a bigger, better new vision of you. You need a bigger, better new vision of God. That's what you need. You need a bigger vision of God. And only this is what will carry you through the dark times. If you grasp a vision of God that is big enough to carry you through, it will hold you by the hand in times of doubt and darkness, and it will make you stand up and turn around in times of sin. We need a vision that will free us to live in the light. You need a bigger vision of God. You need to know the Lord. Now last week, last Sunday afternoon, we had a baptismal service. Four women from this church got baptised. By the way, men can be baptised here. None of them felt like getting soaked last week. It was a great occasion. It was really great. And and one, uh, all four gave some sort of explanation of their faith. Some written, some spoken. I quoted one of the, the women last week. This time I want to I just read something that was read out last week from, by a member of a church called Ali. She said she's had a tough few years. Mum was diagnosed with cancer in 2011 and after battling it for two years, she died last summer. Every day of those two years, I would tell myself many times, remember what you know is true, God is loving. He knows what he's doing. He's not deserted us. Mum is safe in his hands. But if I'm honest, it didn't always feel that way. At times it felt more like torture than love. I didn't understand what God was doing. And sometimes it felt like he just wasn't there at all. I felt like one more thing would break me. A year on, I still can't say I have all the answers. But I can say, listen to this, this is amazing. I can say I've never been more sure that God is loving. That he is good and faithful to his promises. God carried me through each day. And I convinced he always will. When I was angry with him and doubted, he never turned his back on me. I'm more aware than ever that the world and my heart is completely broken. But Jesus has completely and perfectly dealt with my brokenness and promised the most amazing and undeserved future with him, which is the most precious thing ever. Now, do you see what she grasped? She grasped the vision of God. That's what we need. And that's where this chapter of Exodus is going to take us. We learn two things here about God, two big things. But because I'm a preacher, I've cunningly hidden three sub-points into each of them. Firstly, God is totally transcendent. And secondly, God is intimately imminent. 
Firstly, God is totally transcendent. In the book, Peace Child, former missionary Don Richardson tells a story of how he and his wife Carol went to Papua New Guinea to work with a, a tribal group called the Sawi people. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sawi, and they were a cannibal tribe. So it takes some uh, courage to go and work with them. They had an incredibly complex language, far more complicated than English. And the Richardsons spent much time, many years, learning the language so that they could communicate and finally share the good news about Jesus Christ. And when they did, they told the story of Jesus' life, about his birth and his teaching and his miracles. And, his, and they got all the way through. And finally, they got to the, the part of the story where Judas betrayed Jesus. And the, the people listening began to laugh and applaud. How funny, how good Judas managed to betray him. Because in their culture, treacherous murder was the ideal for generations. If you could cleverly deceive and betray somebody and murder them, it was, it was considered a pretty good thing to do. And now this family couple were trying to share the gospel and, and trying to show them that Jesus is more heroic than Judas. That was quite a challenge. Now, every culture finds some aspects of the Bible hard to deal with and hard to embrace because the Bible challenges us. The Bible challenges every culture at some points, just as it affirms and endorses every culture at other points. Now, I think that this point here, that God is totally transcendent, is actually very hard for modern Western people to get their arms around. And I think it gets harder with every passing year. We don't really revere anything now. What this means is God is transcendent. He's not your buddy. He's not your mate. He is utterly, awesomely other and far above us, beyond our understanding, way above our pay grade. And we need to get this in our vision of God. Now, three things that come out in this chapter about God's transcendence, his greatness. I think, firstly, his majesty. Secondly, his holiness. And thirdly, his name. His majesty. His majesty. So can I ask you now, would you all please take your shoes off? I'm going to take mine off too. We're all in this together. How does that feel? I feel I've gone down about two inches. <laughs> do you know, I, I, it's a bit unfair. I did have, obviously I knew I was going to do this, so I checked this morning and I had some socks on with a lot of holes in, so I changed them. And if that's you, I'm sorry. And I'm also sorry for the person sitting next to you. Um, what does it mean to take off your shoes? God says, first thing he says to Moses, well not first thing, uh, Moses, Moses, chapter 3, verse 4. Moses says, here I am. He says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I thought it would be good for us to enter into Moses' experience. All right, we've got our shoes off. What does it mean? It means respect, reverence to somebody who is superior. 
respect. I remember walking into the apartment of some Korean friends once with my shoes on. As Sunyi, she's laughing. You don't walk into someone's house with your shoes on, do you, Sunyi? No. They looked a little bit like I just slapped their grandmother. <laughs> so I went out and took my shoes off. Respect to the home. Now, in the Bible times, taking your shoes off, you do that in the presence of somebody superior. It's hard for us to get this, isn't it? Westerners. I used to share an office some years ago with a British Indian woman, and we became very good friends. One time, my father-in-law phoned me at work, and I picked up the phone and said, Hello, mate! And after she heard the call going on for a little while, and the, I, the call ended, she said, who was that you were just speaking to? It's a father-in-law. Did you call him mate? <laughs> she then shared with me that when she married into her husband's family, her husband's parents became her parents, and she was obligated to look after them until their dying day. They had an honorific title, Mama G and Papa G. Right? She said it would not be unreasonable for me to get down on my knees and touch my father-in-law's feet with my forehead. Just show him respect. And there was I saying, hello, mate. God's majesty. God is the great king. It's not your buddy. He's, he's so far above. You, you take your shoes off out of reverence and respect for him. He's the superior one. Secondly, God's holiness Verse 5 again, let's look at it. Moses says, here I am, and God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, this is the only time in the Bible where ground is described as holy. And it's not because of that particular bit of ground. It's because of the presence of God. God being there makes it holy. The text makes clear that God has appeared to Moses in the form of an angel. Because in verse 2 it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And in verse 4, when this angel speaks, it's actually God speaking. So it's God appearing in the presence of an angel, the angel of the Lord, who crops up elsewhere in the Old Testament. God has chosen to come down to earth and manifest himself in a form that can be seen. And Moses is afraid to look at it. And the presence of God makes the ground special, holy, because God himself is supremely holy. Now, don't think of it in terms of sinless, because it's not like the ground was sinful before and now it's sort of cleaned up. Think of it in terms of common and special. That ground was just ordinary ground, wilderness scrubland with a shrub there. Now it's become special, set apart, different, unique, other because God is there. He's not common. He's other. He's different from us. He's set apart. And God's moral perfection is such that he can't, it says in the Bible, can't even bring himself to look at sin. So some distance is required here for Moses' safety. So as not to intrude on the holiness of God. Stand back. You see, proximity to God, getting too close to God, is actually dangerous to the person who's not properly prepared for it. That's why God often manifests himself in the Bible in fire. 
To Abraham, he manifested himself as a blazing pot, like an oven. To Israel, he was a pillar of fire in the wilderness, leading them. And here he is in a shrub, a bush. It's burning on fire. The book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. Now, why fire? It communicates something to us of the nature of God. His intensity, his purity, his burning holiness. Just as fire refines metal that's put into it by burning away all the impurities, God is absolutely holy. The third thing we notice about God's transcendence here is that he is, it is his name. Because Moses is still trying to get his arms around the job he's been given. And so he says, well, you know, when I go to the Israelites, well, who shall I say has sent me? And God then gives him his name. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's his name. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, in capitals there, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, what is this name? This name that there is in little capital letters, Lord, is actually a name that the, the, uh, the consonants are, in English, Y-H-W-H. You might pronounce it Yahweh. Yahweh. In former times, it was incorrectly uh, translated as Jehovah. Yahweh. That's God's name. It's not a title. It's actually his name. His name means, I am the one who is. Now, that's a very old name, isn't it? I am the one who is. Why call himself that? Well, it goes right to the heart of the problem here. Moses is going to go into Egypt. And when he gets there, he goes into a world where everything ends up being a god. They even have a frog god called Hect. They have a sun god, the sun is worshipped, called Ra. They have the Nile River is deified into a god, Happy. And all sorts of other gods. And what we're going to find as we go through Exodus is that the, god, the real god, the god who is, Yahweh, humiliates all the other gods by turning them into a plague. So you've got a frog god, you get a plague of frogs. You've got a sun god, you get darkness. You get a, you've got a river god, gets turned to blood. God will humiliate all these other so-called gods so that they all know who is the real god. Now, if Yahweh means I am the one who is, what does that make everyone else's name mean? They are the ones who are not. Richard Dawkins is almost right with his book, The God Delusion. Most gods are delusions. Most gods are fictions, dreams, inventions, but not Yahweh. He is the one who is. Now, some people say this is kind of philosophical. There are a few philosophers here. They're the guys who sort of walk around holding their chin. and you know. They think, well, you know, God is the only non-contingent being. God is the only being in the universe that doesn't need anything else around him, the one who is. And that's true. But in this context, it's much more likely it means nothing else is God. I am it. That's why you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear the Pharaoh or any of the gods that he pretends to be the incarnation of. Yahweh is the one and only, the incomparable God. Majestic, 
in his splendour, almighty, powerful. But you know what? Even by sharing his name with Moses here, he's made a stunning move. Because you know what names do. If you're getting to know somebody but you don't know their name, you ask them, they tell you, you share your name. What does it do? It advances a relationship. You can't be very intimate with somebody if you don't know their name. But once we know each other's names, we become intimate. And that leads us from this totally transcendent God who is majestic, holiness, powerful. And leads us to the second point, which is this, that God is intimately imminent. He's very near. He's right here now. He's always there. Close. He's not far from any one of us. And here I want to notice God's concern his closeness and his love. Firstly, God's concern. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. God listens and he looks, he observes, he sees, he hears, and he remembers, and he lets their suffering in. He lets their suffering in. Now, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of disabled children in the world. There are thousands, tens of thousands of disabled children in this country. And I care about them in a kind of an arm's length, sympathetic sort of a way. But let's be honest, they're not really in there. But there is one disabled child whose suffering gets to me in here because he's our son. One of my sons has two disabilities. One physical, so he's got arthritis, bone damage, constant drugs and tests, lame in both feet. He's also got a learning cognitive disability, an autistic disorder. So he struggles. He doesn't make friends easy. He doesn't make friends at all. He doesn't get it. He annoys people. Nobody likes him. He finds it hard to learn. He's always been left behind. Now, I'll tell you what, that child is in there. His suffering, I attend to, and my wife does too. We went to a school recently to try and argue our case that he might be able to go there because it's a school that's excellent for boys like him. And we had a great meeting with the wonderful teacher of that school. And afterwards, we went out of the, the school, got in the car, and burst into tears, thinking about James. Because he's our son. Now, look... In this moment here in Exodus, something amazing happens, and we could have overlooked it. In a really incredible moment, God shares that he has let the suffering of Israel in. It's in here now. Later on, he actually calls Israel my son. He's let them in. We know how Yahweh feels about his children's suffering. He says... I've seen their misery. I've heard them crying out, and I'm concerned. God is stirred in the depths of his great being. His concern. Now, listen, a lot of you here are Christians. Let me ask you, do you know this? Do you really know about God's concern? I don't mean in an intellectual way. Oh, I know God, God is love. I mean really know it. You really experience it. Do you, have you tasted this reality that God is concerned about you and your life? I don't think some of you have. 
And if you haven't, seek it. Ask God to show you his, the depth of his concern. Now, his concern leads to closeness. Closeness. Verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Because he's concerned, he comes near. Now, this isn't some sort of primitive, God's up there, we're down here, you know, sort of several tiers of the universe thing. This is more an appropriate way of talking about the great one, the transcendent one, coming to be near us, making himself available. And with Moses, it was even physical. You know, he's, he sees this bush on fire. It's not something you normally see out in the wilderness with your sheep. He goes over, he hears a voice speak to him. He says he was afraid to look at God. He's afraid. But then later he had what we could only call face-to-face encounters. God has come down. He makes the moves. All the initiative is on his side. Moses didn't seek this out, you know. He was just minding his own business, tending his sheep, and then God intrudes into his life, breaks into space, breaks into time, pushes Moses out of his comfort zone. God rolls up his sleeves and gets involved. But not as a tyrant and a bully. He's come down to be in relationship. And it's really amazing how Moses and Yahweh talk. They interact. Moses even tries to wriggle out of this several times. And God doesn't strike him with a thunderbolt. He responds. It's a relationship. Real relationship. God's closeness. And thirdly, God's love. Look how God speaks to Moses, verse 4. When Yahweh saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Scholars call this a repetition of endearment. A repetition of endearment. In the Bible, you call someone's name twice if you love them. King David had a son that he loved called Absalom. Absalom's terrible son and ended up being killed. So David saw his his favorite son die. And he cried out, oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom. Repetition. And here, the mighty Yahweh gets Moses' attention and calls him to a task. And it's a task that God has been preparing him for throughout his whole life. Moses is actually uniquely qualified for this moment, because although he feels scared and overwhelmed by it, God has been working his whole life long from the moment that the Pharaoh's daughter coincidentally rescued him and took him into the palace and gave him the education that he would need to lead the people out. And then his knowledge of two worlds, his knowledge of being an insider in Egypt and his knowledge of being an outsider. And even if you think about it, the experience of leading sheep in the wilderness is uniquely qualifying him for leading people in the wilderness. God has, God's love has been working all through his life to prepare him for this moment. How great is the love of God? How wonderful is his character? What a combination of things there are in him. Such majesty and yet such humility. Such awe and greatness and such closeness and intimacy. Moses says, who am I? And God responds, who I am. Think about me and I will be with you. Now let me ask you, what about you guys? Friends, 
Where are you up to in this in life? Where are you struggling at the moment? And how are you trying to deal with it? What sort of vision are you seeking to deal with your problems? Where are you sinning at the moment? And how do you think that goes down with the holy God? Where do you feel that God is totally absent from your life? Do you think he's forgotten about you or some part of your existence? Have you almost forgotten him? If your life was a house, are there some rooms where God is not allowed? You know, the living room and the kitchen are pretty clean, but you wouldn't want him to see in the basement. You need a bigger vision of God. You need to grasp both sides of his nature, his awesome and holy transcendence, and his incredible, intimate imminence. He is not far from you. He's right here now beside you. He wants to be near you. His concern, his closeness, and his love. But, in closing, let me just point out that all this creates a tension. The tension is this. How can these two sides of God coexist? How can the holy God live with a flammable people? Because we are flammable. We're all sinners. We all deserve to be burned up by God. The chapter actually raises the question right there in verse 3. Moses sees this strange sight. Uh, why the bush does not burn up? How can a, a bush be on fire and not actually burn up and be consumed? That's the question that the chapter asks. And it's the question of our existence. How is it that we can live with God and not be consumed by him and burned up by him out of his holiness? You know, much later on, Moses was to come back to this very same spot, Mount Sinai, and he was to go up the mountain to receive God's teaching and instruction and guidance from God himself. And there God spoke again from within a fire. And the people all stayed around the foot of the mountain looking up, absolutely quaking and trembling. And God spoke to him dramatically from within the fire. But Moses knew then that God could do it without burning up the people because he'd seen it back at the bush. He knew that God could somehow coexist with frailty, with humanity, in creation because he'd seen this bush not burn up. He just didn't know how God could do it. How could God, a holy God, live with a flammable people? And that mystery was actually kept from Moses. He didn't really find out the answer. But we do know because we know about Jesus. Because this isn't the last time in the Bible when an angel appears to a shepherd and tells him good news. This isn't the last time in the Bible that a baby is saved from a, a genocidal, insecure king. It isn't the last time in the Bible that an unlikely saviour comes out of Egypt as Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt and came out uh, with the child Jesus. It isn't the last time in the Bible that a lamb is sacrificed and its blood is shed in order to protect people from death. Only with Jesus Christ, the lamb is himself. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so at the cross of Jesus, we finally see how God can live with a flammable people. Because at the cross... Jesus takes upon himself all the fiery wrath of a holy God so that we can go free. At the cross, an exchange happens that literally rocks the world. There's actually an earthquake. The sun, it goes dark as an eclipse for a few hours. It's as if creation can't look on because here the maker 
allows himself to be killed. And so, because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God can now be released and come and live in Christian people. And that started at a time called Pentecost. All the apostles were there. Jesus had risen from the dead and gone back to heaven. They were there praying and there was a sound like a great wind. The building shook and flames of fire came in. Now when you see a flame coming on top of your head, what do you expect is going to happen? You're going to be burned. But not this time. Those flames came and they were spared. Because God's spirit, the living, fiery God, was able to come now and live in you. And that's the reality of being a Christian. We're not talking about just adopting some new set of beliefs here. We're not talking about joining the church like you would join a tennis club. We're talking about a new creation that we are part of. We're talking about being born again. And now that God's spirit can live inside you and you live an entirely new life. That's the hope of the Christian gospel. We need a bigger, better vision of God. We need to see that he's totally transcendent and that he's intimately imminent and that he can dwell with us now because of Jesus and then see our lives changed. Let's pray.